Our scripture this morning begins in chapter 7 of John, verse 1. We're going to read 1 through 13. It begins after this. And you know when those transition phrases are there, it's referring to what we have been reading for the last couple of weeks. In those difficult moments when Jesus was trying to explain to his disciples who he was and try to get their minds wrapped around the importance of all of that, And it was so hard for them to understand, so hard for them to to just take that in and even believe it could be true, that many of them left. Many of them chose not to stay with him and deserted him. So we pick up from that point after that long dissertation on being the bread of life, having to eat his his body and drink his blood, and, and all of those things that were so hard for them to take in. After this, Jesus went around in Galilee. He did not want to go about in Judea because the Jewish leaders there were looking for a way to kill him. But when the Jewish festival of tabernacles was near, Jesus' brothers said to him, Leave Galilee and go to Judea so that your disciples there may see the works you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you are doing these things, show yourself to the world. For even his own brothers did not believe in him. Therefore, Jesus told them, My time is not yet here. For you, any time will do. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify that its works are evil. You go to the festival. I am not going up to this festival, because my time has not yet fully come. After he had said this, he stayed in Galilee. However, after his brothers had left for the festival, he went also not publicly, but in secret. Now at the festival, the Jewish leaders were watching for Jesus and asking, Where is he? Among the crowds, there was widespread whispering about him. Some said, He is a good man. Others replied, No, he deceives the people. But no one would say anything publicly about him for fear of the leaders. May God add his blessings to our reading and understanding of his word. Let us be in prayer. Lord, as Pastor Keith comes forward this morning to unpack this scripture message and share the message that you have given him to put before us, we just pray that we have open hearts and open minds and that we are ready to receive that. Because there are things in here that we sometimes just have a little bit of trouble with. It's hard to believe that the Jesus that we know and love had to go about in secret, that he could not be where everyone could be with him and hear him. And he knew that there were certain times and places for the message that he had to share. So, Lord, we pray that 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 message that he is sharing with us, we can spread anytime, place. that we do not have to go in secret, that we do not have to go behind backs, that we can declare our love and devotion to him at all times. And so, Lord, we just ask your blessings on Pastor Keith and pray for him as he comes forward this morning to deliver your message. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning. So it's a pivotal time in Jesus' ministry now. He's, he's made a name for himself. He's, he's become, you know, kind of a hot point issue for people where, as uh, in the past, you know, he, he had done these miracles and, and people had seen him, but now he's starting to, to amp up his teaching to the point where people are really like 
There's no gray area with Jesus now. You, you either really love him or you really hate him. You think he's the son of God, the Messiah, or you think he is completely crazy. Is this thing working here, fellas? No? Okay. All right, well, I guess I'll be chained to this thing today. Is that all right with you? I might carry it around. I'm going to get fired up up here this morning. <laughs> so, Jesus has these moments with people, and he, he, he's putting himself out there. And, of course, there's more to that than just how this affects Jesus. It, it also affects his family. I mean, what would you say if that were your brother, if Jesus were your brother, and he were going around saying these things, how would you react to that? Well, his own brother's... The scripture tells us at this point, don't believe who he is yet. Now, how could they? I mean, how likely is it that your brother is the Messiah? I mean, no matter how good he is, they, they, they could never go, no, it couldn't be this guy. It couldn't be this guy. I mean, we always knew growing up that he was a, a goody two sandals. And we, we struggled, we, we understood that... that our mother struggled to give him a bath because he always just stayed on top of the water. You know? Are you with me? All right. But we, we, just, we just can't fathom the idea that Jesus could possibly be the Messiah. So, so they, don't, they don't believe him. And no doubt it's affecting them. I mean, they're probably doing their thing. And, and Did you hear what your brother said? He said that he is the bread of life that's come down from heaven. And unless we eat his flesh and drink his blood, we have no life in us. I mean, what kind of crazy person? Get your brother under control. Get your brother off this ledge. And so when they get with him and he comes home, he says to them, this is, this is, you know, this is what we're doing. And, and they say to Jesus, okay, fine. If you're so awesome, then go up to the party, right? Go up to this feast and prove to everybody who you are. Because we're sick and tired of having to defend who you are. Now, what's interesting is, is this. It wasn't until after Jesus' resurrection that his brothers came to believe in him. One of his brothers' names was James. He wrote the epistle of James. And in the New Testament, they refer to him as the Lord's brother. And he talks about how it wasn't until Jesus appeared to them that he himself personally believed that Jesus was the Messiah. But at this point... In John 7, they, they don't believe. So they're saying, look, you go and you do something to prove it to everybody. You've said who you are. Now go and show everybody. Go to this festival. Now this Feast of Tabernacles or Feast of Booths was a week-long feast that was there to celebrate the way that the Jews, or remember really, the way that the Jews lived when they were in the desert. See, they didn't have, you know camper trailers, they had to build these things, and they called them suckos, S-U-K-K-O-S, or sukos, and these were little booths that they built out of whatever they could find, and this is how they lived. So the Lord in the book of Leviticus told the Israelites, every, every year you're going to celebrate this for seven days. So it was a celebration that consisted of some prayers and some feasts, and everybody would be there. And Jesus' brothers, of course, were heading there, and they said, Jesus, you go up there and you tell everybody who you are. But Jesus' response was different. He said, my time or my hour has not yet come. Now in John's Gospel, Whenever you see Jesus say, my hour has not yet come, or my time, he's speaking about a specific event, and he's speaking 
about his crucifixion. And we know this from John 17, verse 1. I'll I'll show you what it says here. This is the prayer of Jesus. It says, After this, Jesus had said, He looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. For you granted Him authority over all people, that He might give eternal life to all those you have given Him. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had before the world began. See, this was the hour when Jesus had been betrayed and would soon face his execution Now, this moment in time, this, quote, hour for Jesus had been in view his entire life. It was in view when he attended the wedding at Cana in Galilee, where he turned the water into wine. Remember, his mother came to him and said, they have no more wine. And his response to her was, woman, what have I to do with you? My hour has not yet come. But then he does it anyway. See, Jesus always wants to make his mother happy, so... It was in his view when he taught the crowds and was loved by them at first. His hour was in view when he, welcomed, when he was welcomed into Jerusalem by the cheering crowds. He knew they would soon cry for his death. His hour was in view when he met with Nicodemus and talked with him about the new birth and the kingdom of heaven. He knew it was ahead of him when he spoke with the Samaritan woman at the well and offered her living water. Every good thing that happened in Jesus' life happened with him understanding his time or his hour. He knew when and how he was going to die. How would your life look if you knew when you were going to die? Now, that's sort of a morbid question, isn't it? But I want you to think about that. Because what I want you to remember is that Jesus always had that information, didn't he? He always knew. You know, there's that song, that country song. I'm not a big country western guy, but sometimes the lyrics of country songs, are, they seem to go a little bit deeper than ooh, baby, baby, ooh, baby, baby, ooh, like you hear on the radio every day, right? And on the pop stations. And there's that country song that talks about how you'd live if you knew like you were going to die. You know the, the, that, that song, right? And this guy says he'd go skydiving, he'd, he'd do all this crazy stuff, and, and he says, I hope that everybody gets a chance to live like they were going to die, right? That they knew they were dying. And the idea, of course, behind the song is that you should live every day with that sort of, of zest for life and, and that sort of, 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 you know, grab everything for the moment type of life. Now, I'm not quite sure that's what Jesus would would, would do if he knew when he was going to die because he did know. But this idea of how your life would look if you knew where, when you were going to die I think is important to us because some of us, let's face it, some of us get a little bit more heads up about that than others do. Last week I was at a meeting um, with our, our team that's getting ready to go to Haiti. And while I was sitting in that meeting, I got a text from from someone who, who doesn't attend our church but knows, knows that I'm a pastor and he's a, he's a person I've become a, a pretty good friend with. And he sent me a text and he said, Keith, he said, Anna is about to die. 
can you please come down here and say a prayer with us and our family? And I said, of course. So I, I, as soon as the meeting was over, I, I went down and, and did so. Now let me tell you about who Anna is and who my friend is. My, my friend's name is Jeff, and he, he, was, he was one of the contractors that helped us redo our building down the street. And through that, through that process, I got to know him and a little bit about his family. And he had us uh, do some photographs for, for five generations of his family, beginning, starting with Anna, who was 93 years old. And I got a photo of her. I want to show this to you. This woman is a firecracker. Isn't she adorable? And, and we did a, a series of portraits with her. And, I, and I've got just the, the coolest, like, outtake portraits of this, of, this, of this woman. And I have them hanging in my office down there. And actually, this particular photo I put on a, on a social media account site that was picked up by this group that blasts these photos all across the country and the world, and thousands of people got to see this picture and comment on how beautiful Anna was. And she couldn't, she didn't understand what that meant, but she thought it was pretty funny. Well, she was about to pass away. And Jeff had told me, he said, you know, she really took a liking to you, Keith. And if you'd be so kind to come down, the doctors have told us that she's going to go at any time. So I went down there, and when I got there, and here was the beautiful thing. Her entire family was gathered with her because she knew her time had come and she was ready. Matter of fact, she had told the family, will you quit praying for me? I want to go meet Jesus. She said, stop praying for me. I'm ready to go. What am I still doing here? She even said, you know, I'd be gone by now if you guys hadn't been praying so hard for me. (laughs) So when I got down there, the room in this little apartment where she was resting in a recliner was, was filled with people, and there were more coming. She had 34, I believe, great-grandchildren, and, and, and so many people. Because she knew her time had come, she was able to gather everyone together and to say her goodbyes. And when I walked in the room, she looked at me and probably didn't recognize me at first, said, Who are you? And they said, Anna, don't you remember Keith? And I said, Don't you remember when I took your picture? She says, oh, yeah, let me ask you about that picture. She says, what do I get out of that whole deal anyway? <laughs> and I said, well, you get the, you know, a bunch of adoring fans. And she goes, that's it? And then she fell asleep right in the middle of her sentence. And her, her daughter went to wake and said, you've you got to wake up, Anna. There's a, there's a young man that's come here to see you. And she's kind of sleeping. She says, oh, honey, tell him I don't snore. She was a firecracker. And she was kind of in and out, but we had a moment where we all gathered around her to pray and thank God for her life and thank God for the fact that he was going to take her home. And then when I said amen, she grabbed my neck and pulled me tight, and she had some strength left in her. And I said to Jeff later, I said, I'm not so sure about this. She's got some strength. And she just said, God bless you, Pastor Keith. And it was a powerful moment. And I tell you what, I remember feeling like, I hope, I hope I have an experience like that. I hope that I know my time. And some of you have been in situations just like that with loved ones. Others of you have have gotten the call that something has happened suddenly and you haven't had those moments. And and you wonder what it would have been like if you would have had them. and, And how does all that play out in life? And it's hard to talk about. It's hard to think about. But understand this, for Jesus Christ, He knew His entire life what those moments were going to look like for Him. He knew. Everything He said and did, He had full knowledge of His time 
And here's what's interesting. He says to his brothers, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. What does that mean? What does that mean? See, Jesus' defining moment in his life was his sacrificial obedience to his father. That was his time. Where his unbelieving brother's time was always here. See, Jesus' time was the cross. But the world's time was the here and now. And that's kind of the message of the world, isn't it? Live in the here and now. Don't worry about the future. Don't think about what's down the road. Don't consider things that could happen or might happen. How do you feel right now? Let's live in those moments. Jesus, go and show everybody who you are. Make them stop you know, making fun of you and us. Promote yourself. The world's time is about self-promotion. It's about making everybody see who you are right now. It's about cultural acceptance. It's about making everyone like you. It's about, you know, what can I do in these moments? This is the, this is the world's time. And it's about immediate gratification. Live in the moment. That's the way the systems of the world work, isn't it? You can buy anything you want to with no money down right now. Spread your payments out. Don't worry about the future. Get it right now. Here's the moment. You only live once, right? You're only young once. Get it all right now. The future will take care of itself, right? That's the way the world works. And Jesus' brothers were operating in that mindset. But that's not the mindset that Jesus operated in. His time was not about the here and now. His time was the cross. What's the cross about? The cross is about sacrifice. The cross is about self-giving love. And the cross is ultimately about humility. These things are the polar opposite of the world's time, aren't they? The the world isn't in to sacrifice and self-giving love and humility. The world's in for, hey, everybody, look at me. What, What do I get out of it? What could be done for me? How can I promote myself? Jesus' time is totally different than the world's time. So now let's talk about your time. Let's talk about your time. What will define it? What will define it? You know, this reminds me of a sermon I I preached last year at Summer Games on Monday night about time and about defining moments in a person's life. And one of the things as we preached that sermon, there was a clock up on the stage and it was constantly cycling down from the moment the students entered the camp until the Friday when they would leave. We had it set up that it would cycle all the way down to zero on Friday at about 11 o'clock in the morning. And as I preached on Monday night, there was still a lot of time left on that clock. And and one of the things I encouraged the students to think about was this. You know, a person living in this world can't stop things from happening them to them in their lives, they can't stop defining moments from happening. Because so many things are outside of our control, aren't they? 
However, we get to decide which moments will define us and how. We get to decide that. So that night we offered the students an opportunity to let that moment on a Monday night in July be their defining moment. And as we invited students to come down and pray to receive Christ and to say, this is my moment. Many things have happened in my life that have been beyond my control. And those things might have been defining me up until this point in time. I might be defined by by abuse that's happened to me. I might be defined by mistakes that I've made. I might be defined by what my parents are like. I might be defined by, by where I live. But no longer I will choose to be defined by one thing and one thing only. And that's by Jesus Christ and the kids came down and when the when they knelt down to pray they were given a marker and many of them wrote those numbers of the time on their arms to say this was my time let's talk about your time what will define it i thought about this week when i heard the news wednesday night of the horrible shooting that took place in south carolina You know, the people that gathered in that church had no control over what was about to happen to them. None of them signed a yellow card that said, I want to be martyred in a Bible study. But it happened to them. None of their families chose those moments. You know what was amazing to me? As the hours progressed and the days progressed to see how the families of the victims would choose how that time would define them. Would they be defined by hate and revenge and retributions and calls for rioting and and revenge? No. They would be defined by forgiveness and love. And calls for peace. And as that young man stood in front of a screen, they couldn't see him, he couldn't see that, they could see him, he couldn't see them, but he could hear them. One of the family members of the victims said, We forgive you. We forgive you. See, that's a defining moment, isn't it? And they chose how they would be defined by what happened to them. You and I make similar decisions about our whole lives. So will your life be defined like Jesus' brothers or like Jesus? That's really the question for the ages, isn't it? Will our lives be defined for for what we get and who loves us here? Or will it be like Jesus? Jesus ends up going to the feast, as as you heard Vicky read. He goes, but he goes on his own time, not when they said and not how they said. He goes by himself privately because he's not concerned with doing what the world thinks he should do. Jesus would have looked a lot different in this world if he would have done what the world thinks that he should do, right? And you know what? I think the church looks a lot different when the church does what they think the world thinks it should do. Does that make sense? Than rather what Jesus should have the church do. See, Jesus' concern was not popularity or self-promotion. His concern was on the glory set before him 
as he would follow his father's will. See, you and I see the cross, and we see pain, we see agony. Jesus looked at the cross, and he knew all those things were part of it, but he saw glory. He saw glory. I love the way the writer of Hebrews states this in Hebrews 12, 1 through 2. He says, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus endured the cross for the reward of our salvation. And it's important that we recognize this. Jesus didn't need salvation. Jesus didn't need to be saved. We need to be saved. We need salvation. What Jesus did, His defining moment, His time was about glory. It was about sacrifice. It was about us. That's what defined Him. And that's the biggest difference between Jesus' time and the world's time. So let me ask you this question. Are you going to be known for what you did for yourself or for what you did for others? That's an enduring question, isn't it? How will your time be known? Are you going to be known for what you did for yourself or for what you did for others? What will define your time? I watched this uh, program on, on uh, television, uh, I don't know, a couple months ago. It was about, the, about three men. It was called The Men Who Built America. It was pretty fascinating. And it was about J.P. Morgan, John Rockefeller and Andrew Carnegie, three of the wealthiest human beings who have ever lived on this planet. And these men were, were com- competitive with each other to see who could become more wealthy. And for a time, John Rockefeller was the most wealthiest person ever. Then Carnegie was. And they, and they were just constantly always trying to one-up each other in terms of their wealth. And they had so much money... But at least from what I've read in history and seen about them, they, they weren't the happiest people ever. Okay? It's sometimes is the case. Because their focus was not on enjoying life. Their focus was always getting more. I think it was Rockefeller who was asked, how much money is enough on his deathbed? And he replied, just a little more. Just a little bit more. Well, something happened in, the, in these men's lives. I don't know what it exactly was, but I think as they experienced all this wealth and all of this acclaim that came from it, and of course found it not as satisfying as they would have ex- had expected, there was a shift, and I think it began with Carnegie, who decided that he didn't want to be known for being the world's wealthiest man. He wanted to be known for being the world's most generous man. And Rockefeller, I think, got on track with that too. And both of these men began to try to outdo each other in generosity. And they gave away what would be billions of dollars in today's money. And it was as if their goals before they died was to, to outdo each other in this generosity and give away so much money towards society to make it a better place. 
that the world would be different. Of course, our, our, our offices are in a Carnegie library that was, you know, donated to help that. Now, there may be others that know more about the story that would say, oh, well, there's other motivations involved. I'm not concerned with all of that. What I'm concerned with is the shift in motivation of how one's time is defined from a life spent of self-promotion and self-acquiring of wealth to now, what can I do to be known as being generous and to give it all away? It's fascinating to me. What will define your time? Will you be known like Jesus' brother's? Or like Jesus. Galatians 6, 8, 9 says this, For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Let us not lose heart in doing good. For in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. You get to choose. I get to choose. Is my time like Jesus, brothers? Or is my time like Jesus? You know, you may have lived a life of selfishness up until this point. Your life might have been all about self-promotion and, and pride and, 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 and whatever for yourself, cultural acceptance and things like that. You might have lived that life right now. And if today were your moment, the world might look back on you and say, yep, that person sure did a lot for themselves. That might have been your life up to this point, but guess what? It's never too late to make a different choice. It's never too late to change what will define your time. And you can turn it around right here today. You may not know when or how you will die. You probably don't. So you have to make sure that you live as if your time is always here, right? What Jesus knew about his time propelled him into a life of love and generosity and truth-telling. What should not knowing your time propel you towards? Let's pray. Lord, as you lived every moment of your life, you knew what lie ahead of you. You knew you would be betrayed by your friends. You knew you would be abandoned. You knew you would be mocked and despised and rejected. You knew that you would be beaten and crucified. And Lord, with that knowledge in mind, you were not bitter. You were loving. You were not reluctant to serve. But Lord, you were the first to serve. You were not proud, you were humble. You were not concerned with the here and now, Lord. You lived for the glory of the cross. And God, many of us are so easily entangled by that sin which ensnares us to, to make us consider that this life is all there is and this moment is all there is. Oh Lord, forgive us. Lord, whether we're people that, that know when our moment is or whether we're people who don't know when our moment is, Lord. God, give us the grace and the strength 
to sow not to this world, but rather to the Spirit, to live lives of love and generosity and joy and truth-telling and selflessness and humility. Yeah, we don't want to be like your brothers before they believed in you. So Lord, give us what we need today to make those changes so that our time can be defined not by what we've done for ourselves, Lord, but by what we've done for others. And most importantly, to be defined by what you've done for us on the cross. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Marian Methodist is very special to Deb and I uh, since we joined several years ago through the friendships we've made uh, and through the diversity of the worship services, the um, Bible studies, the small groups, the mission trips, and the other activities. Um, we've just been very blessed. We give our gifts to Marian Methodist because not only is the church concerned with our church family, but it also, through its activities and events, has been very deeply involved with our community, with our nation, and with our world and the world events. My name is Kurt Liscom, and these are the reasons we give to the United Methodist Church. Will you join me in worshiping God in this way, and will the ushers please come forward?